0: chapter 97 of consuelo this is a librivox recording all librivox recordings are in the public domain for more information or to volunteer please visit librivox.org consuelo by george sand chapter 97 half as pupil half as attendant on porpora hayden who was most anxious to hear the music and study the arrangement of operas and all their parts obtained permission to glide behind the scenes when Consuelo sang. For a couple of days past he remarked that Porpora, at first unwilling to admit him to the theater, had good-humoredly invited him to be present even before he requested it. The reason was that events had contributed to change the intentions of the maestro. Maria Teresa, while chattering on the subject of music with the Venetian ambassador, had returned as usual to her matrimomania as consuelo termed it and had expressed to him her wish that this great cantatrice should fix herself permanently at vienna by marrying the maestro's young pupil she had made inquiries about haydn from the ambassador himself and the latter having assured her that he evinced very great genius and moreover that he was a good catholic her majesty had commissioned him to arrange the marriage promising at the same time to provide handsomely for the young couple. Corner was delighted with the idea, for he had a strong affection for Joseph and gave him a small allowance monthly to enable him to pursue his studies. He mentioned the subject in warm terms to Porpora, and the latter fearing that Consuelo would leave the stage in order to marry some nobleman, suffered himself after much opposition, for he would have much preferred his pupils remaining unmarried. be persuaded. To strike the blow more securely, the ambassador determined to show him Hayden's compositions and to inform him that the serenade with which he had been so pleased was his own production. Papora confessed that they displayed strong evidences of talent and that with his instructions and assistance he might come to write for the voice, and in short that the marriage of a cantatrice to a composer might be very suitable and advantageous to both parties. The youth of the young couple and their slender resources would impose on them the necessity of unremitting labor, and Consuelo would be thus chained to the theater. The maestro surrendered. He had received no reply from Reisenberg any more than Consuelo, and the silence made him dread some opposition to his views or some frantic project on the part of the young count. If I could marry, or at least engage Consuelo to another, thought he, I should have nothing more to apprehend from that quarter. The difficulty was to bring Consuelo to this determination. To exhort her to it would have tended to arouse the idea of resistance. With his Neapolitan acuteness, he said to himself that the force of circumstances must bring about a change in the sentiments of the young girl. She had already a friendship for Beppo, and Beppo, although he had conquered love in his heart, yet displayed so much zeal, admiration, and devotion toward her, that Popor might very well imagine that he was violently in love. He thought that by not putting any restraint on his intercourse with her, he would furnish him with opportunities for making himself heard, and that by informing him in proper time and place of the empress's design and his own. He would impart to him the courage of eloquence and the force of persuasion necessary to his success. He consequently ceased to ill-treat and look down upon him, and gave a free course to their affections, flattering himself that the less he interfered the better affairs would proceed. Porpora, in thus never doubting of success, committed a great error. He laid Consuelo open to misrepresentation and slander, For no sooner was Joseph seen twice with her behind the scenes, than the whole dramatic staff proclaimed her attachment to this young man, and poor Consuelo, innocent and confiding like all upright minds, never dreamed of the danger she was in, nor took any means to avoid it. So from the day on which the last rehearsal of Zenobia took place, all eyes were on the watch, all tongues in motion." In every corner, behind every decoration, the actors, the choristers, and the underlings of all kinds passed their good-natured or severe, their kind or malignant remarks on the scandal of this budding intrigue or on the happiness of the betrothed pair. Consuelo, wholly absorbed in her part and in her feelings as an artist, saw or heard nothing of all this and suspected no danger. As for the thoughtful Joseph. He was so completely taken up with the opera in course of performance, or that which he purposed, composing himself, that he heard indeed some passing equivocal remarks, but did not in the least understand them. So far was he from flattering himself with vain hopes. At such times he would raise his head and look around as if to seek who they were leveled at, but not succeeding in his search, and completely indifferent to everything of the kind, he relapsed into his meditations. Between each act of the opera, there was frequently performed a little buffa piece, and this day it happened to be the Impresario delle Canarie, a gay and comic production of Metastasios. Carilla, who filled the part of an imperious, exacting, fantastic prima donna, was nature itself, and her success in this little trifle consoled her in some degree for the loss of her grand part of Zenobia. While they were performing the last part of the interlude, and before the third act of the opera commenced, Consuelo, who felt somewhat oppressed by the emotion excited by her part, retreated behind the curtain, between the horrible valley bristling with mountains and precipices, which formed the first decoration, and the good river Araxis, bordered by pleasant mountains, which was to appear in the third scene to recreate the eyes of the feeling spectator. She was walking rapidly up and down in the passage when Joseph brought her her fan, which she had left in the prompter's box, and which she used with much satisfaction. The promptings of his heart, and Purpore's voluntary inattention, had induced Joseph mechanically to rejoin his friend, and a feeling of confidence and sympathy always inclined Consuelo to receive him joyously. But from this mutual regard, at which the angels of heaven need not have blushed, fatal consequences were destined to ensue. Our lady readers, as we are well aware, always anxious to know the event, would ask no better than to be acquainted with the result at once. But we must entreat them to have a little patience. Well, my dear friend, said Joseph, smiling as he extended his hand, You are no longer, it would seem, so dissatisfied with the dramas of our illustrious Abbe, and you have found in the music of your prayer a window by which the genius that possesses you can wing its upward flight. I have sung well, then? Did you not perceive that my eyes are red? Ah, yes, you have wept. So much the better. I am happy to have made you weep, as if it were for the first time. But you are rapidly becoming the artist that Porpora wishes you to be, my good Consuelo. The fire of success is lighted up within you. When you sung in the leafy bowers of the Bomer you saw me weep heartily, and you wept yourself, melted by the beauty of your song. Now it is otherwise, you smile with pleasure and thrill, with pride on beholding the tears you cause others to shed. Courage, my Consuelo, you are now our prima donna in the fullest sense of the term. Say not so, my friend, I shall never be like yonder one. And she nodded toward Carilla, who was singing on the stage on the other side of the curtain. Do not take what I have said amiss, replied Joseph. I merely meant to say that your inspiration has proved victorious. In vain does your calm reason, your austere philosophy, and the memory of Reisenberg strive against the influences of the Python. His divine breath fills your bosom even to overflowing. Confess that your whole frame thrills with delight. I feel your arm tremble against mine, your countenance glows with animation. Never have I seen you so lovely and majestic. No, you were not more agitated, not more inspired, when Count Albert read to you the tragedies of Greece." "'Ah, how you pay me by that word!' exclaimed Consuelo, turning pale and withdrawing her arm from Joseph's. "'Why do you utter that name here? It is a name too sacred to be mentioned in this temple of folly. It is a name which, like a peal of thunder, thrusts back into dim night the empty phantoms of these golden dreams.' "'Well then, Consuelo, since I am forced to tell you so,' resumed Hayden, after a moment's silence. Never will you be able to decide on marrying that man. Hush, hush, Joseph, I have promised. Well then, keep your promise, but you will never be happy with him. Quit the theater, renounce your career as an artist. It is now too late. You have tasted a pleasure, the remembrance of which would torment your whole after life. You terrify me, Beppo. Why do you say such things to me today? I know not. I say them in despite of myself. Your fever has passed into my veins, and I feel as if, when I went home, I should write something sublime. It may probably be something very trivial after all, but no matter, for the moment I feel as if inspired. How gay and tranquil you are, while I, in place of the pride and joy of which you speak, feel nothing but a sentiment of grief, and could weep and smile in the same breath. I feel well assured that you suffer, for you ought to suffer. At the moment when you feel your power develop within you to its full extent, a pang seizes and overcomes you. Yes, it is true. What means it? It means that you are an artist and that you do violence both to nature and conscience in renouncing your profession. Yesterday it seemed as if this was not the case. Today it seems as if it were. My nerves are shaken. The agitation I feel is frightful. On no other grounds can I account for my indecision. Hitherto I denied the influence of these feelings and their power. I always entered on the stage with calmness and a modest determination to fulfill my part conscientiously. But I am no longer my former self, and should I make my appearance on the stage at this moment, I feel as if I should commit the wildest extravagances. All prudence, all self-command would leave me. Tomorrow I hope it will not be so, for this emotion borders on madness. My poor friend, I fear, or rather I hope, it will ever be so. Without true and deep emotion, where would be your power? I have often endeavored to impress upon the musicians and actors I have met, that without this agitation, this delirium, they could do nothing, and that in place of calming down with years and experience they would become more impressionable at each fresh attempt. It is a great mystery, said Consuelo, sighing, neither vanity nor jealousy nor the paltry wish of triumphing could have exerted such overwhelming power over me. No, I assure you that in singing this prayer of Zenobia's and this duet with Teridates, in which I am borne away as in a whirlwind by Cafariello's vigor and passion, I thought neither of the public nor of my rivals, nor of myself. I was Zenobia and believed in the gods of Olympus with truly Christian fervor, and I burned with love for the worthy Caffariello, whom, the performance once over, I could not look at without a smile. All this is strange and I begin to think that, dramatic art being a perpetual falsehood, Heaven inflicts upon us the punishment of making us believe as real the illusions we practice on the spectator. No, it is not permitted to man to turn the passions and emotions of actual life into a jest. We must keep our souls holy and pure for true affections and useful deeds, and when we pervert God's purposes and aims, He chastises us for our folly by inflicting on us mental blindness. Eh, there lies the mystery, Consuelo, who can penetrate his designs. Would he impart these instincts to us from our very cradle? Would he implant in us this craving desire for art which we can never suppress, if he entirely prescribed their application? Why even from infancy have I never loved the plays of my companions? Why, since I have been my own master, have I labored at music with an assiduity which would have killed any other at my age. Repose revives me, labor gives me life and strength. It was the same with yourself, you have told me so a hundred times, and when we related the history of our lives, we each thought the other's story was our own. Ah, the hand of God is in everything, and every power, every impulse, even when we fail to understand it is from him. You are born an artist, it must be so, and whoever places a barrier in your way inflicts death or worse than death upon you. Oh, Beppo, exclaimed Consuelo, agitated and confused, you terrify me. I know not what to do. Alas, if I could expire tomorrow when the curtain falls, after having tasted for the first and last time the joy and inspiration of a true artist, It would save me, perhaps, from a long career of pain and suffering. Ah, said Joseph with forced gaiety, I would much rather that your Count Albert or your humble servant should expire first. At this moment Consuelo raised her eyes in a melancholy reverie toward the wing which opened before her. The interior of a great theatre, seen by day, is so different from what it appears to us from the front of the stage, when brilliantly lighted, that it is impossible to form an idea of it when one has not seen it thus. Nothing can present a more gloomy or frightful appearance than the immense expanse, lined with tier above tier of boxes and buried in darkness, solitude, and silence. If a human face were to appear in those boxes, closed like tombs, it would seem like a specter and would make the boldest actor recoil with fear. The dim and fitful light, which is admitted from several windows in the roof at the extremity of the stage, glances obliquely over scaffoldings, torn scenes, and dusty boards. Upon the stage the eye, deprived of the illusion of perspective, is astonished at that narrow and confined space where so many persons and passions are to play their part, representing majestic movements, imposing masses, ungovernable emotions which will seem such to the spectator, and which are studied, nay, measured to a line, in order to avoid embarrassment, confusion, or even coming in contact with the scenes. But if the stage looks small and mean, the height above it, intended to receive so many decorations, and to afford space for so much machinery, appears, on the other hand, immense, freed from all those scenes of festooned clouds, architectural cornices, or verdant bows which divide it in certain proportions to the eye of the spectator. In its real disproportion this elevation has in it something lofty and severe, and if on looking upon the stage you might imagine yourself in a dungeon, on casting your eyes upward you would think yourself in a gothic church, but a ruined or unfinished one, for everything there is dim, unformed, strange, and incoherent shapeless ladders for the use of the mechanist, placed as if by chance and thrown without apparent motive against other ladders, dimly seen in the confusion of these indistinct details, piles of oddly shaped boards, scenes upside down, whose design presents no meaning to the mind, ropes interlaced like hieroglyphics, nameless fragments, pulleys and wheels, which seem prepared for unknown tortures, All these recall to us those dreams we have when about to awake, in which we see strange and unheard of things, while we make vain efforts to ascertain where we are. Everything is vague, shadowy, and unsubstantial. Aloft you see a man at work, supported as it were by spider's webs. To your uncertain gaze, he might be either a mariner clinging to the cordage of a vessel, or an enormous rat gnawing the worm-eaten carpentry. You hear sounds and words proceeding from you-know-not-where. They are uttered some eight feet above your head and the bewildering echoes which slumber amid the recesses of the fantastic dome convey them to your ear either distinct or confused according as you may happen to change your position. A fearful noise shakes the scaffolds and is repeated in prolonged rattlings. Is the frail structure about to crumble, or are those trembling balconies about to fall and bury the poor workmen beneath the ruins? No, it is a fireman sneezing, or some cat pursuing its prey amid the mazes of the aerial labyrinth. Ere you are unaccustomed to those sounds and objects, you feel a sensation of terror. You are ignorant of what is going on, and know not what unheard-of apparitions may put all your philosophy and courage to the proof. You understand nothing of what surrounds you, and whatever is not clearly distinguished either by the bodily or mental vision, whatever is uncertain and incomprehensible, always alarms the logic of the senses. What seems the most reasonable supposition when entering on such a chaos is that you are about to witness the fiendish revels of some wizard alchemist and his attendant demons in their magic laboratory. Consuelo allowed her eyes to wander carelessly over the singular edifice, and the poetry of this disorder struck her for the first time. At each end of the alley, formed by the two back scenes, was a long dark wing, across which shadow-like figures flitted from time to time. Suddenly one of these figures paused as if awaiting her, and she even fancied that it beckoned her to approach. Is it Porpora? said she to Joseph. No, replied he, but it is doubtless someone who has been sent to tell you that they are about to commence the third act. Consuelo quickened her pace and hastened in the direction of the person, whose features she could not distinguish as he had retreated back to the wall. But when she was within three paces of him and on the point of questioning him, he glided rapidly through the adjacent wing, gained the back of the theater, and disappeared in the depths beyond. That person seems as if he had been playing the spy upon us, said Joseph. And as if he was now evading our pursuit, added Consuelo, struck with the man's anxiety to escape. I cannot tell why, but I feel afraid of him. She returned to the stage and rehearsed the last act, at the close of which she again experienced the enthusiastic impulse which had before inspired her. When she was about to put on her mantle before leaving the theatre, and was looking around for it, she was dazzled by a sudden glare. They had opened a window on the roof, and the rays of the setting sun streamed through and fell obliquely before her. The contrast of the sudden light with the previous gloom caused her to take a random step or two, when all at once she found herself opposite the person in the dark cloak by whom she had been startled behind the scenes. She saw his figure indistinctly, and yet she thought she recognized him, But he had already disappeared, and she looked around for him in vain. "'What is the matter with you?' said Joseph, holding out her mantle. "'Have you hurt yourself against some of the decorations?' "'No,' said she, but I have seen Count Albert.' "'Count Albert? Here? Are you sure? Is it possible?' "'It is possible. It is certain,' said Consuelo, drawing him along with her, and commencing to search behind the scenes in every direction. Joseph assisted her in her scrutiny, although convinced that she was mistaken, while Papora summoned her impatiently to accompany him home. Consuelo could see no one who bore the least resemblance to Albert, and when, obliged to leave the theatre with her master, she passed in review all those who had been on the stage along with her, she observed several cloaks similar to that which had already attracted her attention. No matter, she whispered to Joseph, who watched her anxious gaze. I have seen him. He was there. It must have been a deception of your senses, replied Joseph. Had it been Count Albert, would he not have spoken to you? And yet you say he fled at your approach. I do not say that it was really he, but I saw his features, and I now think with you that it must have been a vision. Some misfortune must have happened to him. I long to set out at once and hasten to Bohemia. I am sure that he is in danger, that he calls me, that he expects me. I see, among other bad offices, that he has infected you with his madness, my poor Consuelo. The excitement you felt in singing has disposed you to entertain these wild ideas. Be yourself again, I beseech you, and be assured that if Count Albert be in Vienna, you will see him flying to you before the day be over. This hope revived Consuelo's courage. She hastened forward with Peppo, leaving the old maestro, who on this occasion was not displeased at being forgotten, far behind. But Consuelo thought neither of Joseph nor Porpora. She hurried onward, arrived all breathless at the house, rushed up to her apartment, but found no one there. Joseph made inquiries from the domestics, but no one had called in their absence. Consuelo waited all day, but in vain. The whole evening, and even till far on in the night, she gazed anxiously from the window at everyone who passed in the street. Every moment she was certain that the approaching comer was about to stop, but he always passed on, at one time with the light step of some youthful gallant humming a popular air, at another with the faltering gait and dry, sharp cough of an aged invalid. Consuelo, now convinced that she must have been dreaming, retired to rest, and next day when the impression had worn off, she admitted to Joseph that she had not clearly distinguished any of the features of the unknown. A sort of vague resemblance in his general appearance to Albert, a resemblance strengthened by his dress, his pale complexion, and his jet-black beard, or what seemed such by the fantastic light of the theatre. It sufficed to convert a sudden impression into certainty. If a man such as you have often described to me, said Joseph, had been behind the scenes, his neglected air, long beard, and dark hair would surely have attracted comment. Now I have asked everyone belonging to the theater, even to the porters, who permit no one whom they do not know to enter without a proper authority, and they all agree in saying that they saw no stranger in the theater that day. My senses must have played me false then. I was agitated. I scarcely knew what I did. I was thinking of Albert. His image was in my soul. Someone passed me, and I took him for the person who occupied my thoughts. My mind must surely be much weakened. The cry which I uttered issued from my very heart. Something strange and wonderful took place within me. Think no more of such chimeras, said Joseph. Study your part and let your thoughts dwell only on this evening. End of chapter 97, read by Bryce cries Youngstown, December 8, 2021.